for our text, if you just turn to Ephesians chapter 5, on page 1346. Page 1346, Ephesians chapter 5, and reading at verse 18, where Paul uh, commands us, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or scattering or waste, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, we're to speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we are to sing And we are to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And as I mentioned this morning, the Greek word there for making melody means to pluck the strings. So we are to pluck the strings of our hearts to the Lord as we sing. Now, we're essentially picking up uh, where we left off this morning. And really what we're doing is we're answering one of the most uh, common questions I get, certainly, and probably you get too, in connection with worship here. It's important to do this from time to time, because people do ask it. They are genuinely perplexed. Um, Because, too, we need to remember ourselves what we do and why we do it. You'll remember that. I highlighted in the morning that this is our worship service. As the word means, it is a liturgy. From the very moment that we say, let us worship God, to the moment that the blessing is pronounced upon the congregation, we have a series of acts of worship. And it's extremely important that what we do as worship is precisely what God asks for. I gave several instances in the morning of people with whom God dealt severely because they did not offer as worship what God had required as worship. They thought they could give what was acceptable to themselves, and they thought that what was acceptable to themselves should be acceptable to God. It's on that principle that people introduce all kinds of song and all kinds of performances into worship, and lots of things pass themselves off as worship, which God is not pleased with. The extent to which God shows his displeasure is up to him. When Ananias and Sapphira lied in church, God struck them both dead. He doesn't strike every liar dead. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about lies. But as I said in the morning, very often you'll discover at the beginning of a thing God shows his displeasure, and then he leaves it and perhaps intervenes later. God does care about lying in church, and God cares about every act that we offer as worship to God between our call to worship and the pronouncing of the benediction. So it's important that we know and understand what we do in worship, why we do it. And, of course, the big question we're looking at, and we're breaking off our studies, really, just to look at this today. The big question that we're asking is, why is there no musical accompaniment when we sing? People are surprised, of course, at it, because, as I mentioned, in the West it is now so common to do this. There's an assumption that it must have something to do with being anti-music or anti-musical instruments. Or, again, there's an assumption that maybe we're just stuffy or traditional people. These things have nothing to do with it. In the first place, we have, or at least we ought to have, a positive view of musical instruments. Many of us play musical instruments, and rightly so. 
and it is good and right always to play them, when we play them, to the glory of God. We should be satisfied that how we play them is right and glorifying to him. It doesn't matter what we play, that it is right and glorifying to him. So we have a positive view of that. Neither are we interested in traditional, which is a word I don't like, in connection with church matters. A thing is either true or false. Whether it's traditional is neither here nor there. I'm no big fan of anything being traditional or being modern. These things are not an issue. Traditionalism is in many churches for many different reasons. It's probably the reason a lot of churches just stick with a simple piano rather than adopt a full-blown orchestra because they are traditional. In fact, when people discover that I come from a church that does not use musical instruments, they, they say, well, we only have a piano, as much as to say, well, I should be happy with that. It doesn't matter to me whether it's a piano or whether it's a 50-piece orchestra. It really doesn't. Uh, the question is, should there be something there at all? And the fact of the matter is that the reasons we have for not using musical instruments are simply scriptural ones. And far from being unusual, as I mentioned in the morning, and I hope I stressed it in the morning, and I'll stress it tonight because it needs stressing, there were no musical instruments played in the first eight to nine hundred years of the church's existence. It didn't matter where you were, supposing you were worshipping in South Africa or in Asia or in Europe or in the Middle East, Nobody played any instruments in the church. For the first 300 years or so, only the psalms were sung too, which I'll come to in a couple of weeks' time because I want to deal with that too. But for our purposes tonight, for the first 800 years, no musical instruments. That is quite a fact. And even over the next 300 or so, very few. It only became common in the 13th or even the 14th century. So really, as I said in the morning, um, the burden of proof is not really on me to say why we don't use them. The burden of proof is actually on you to say why you think they should be used. But I acknowledge that in the West, it is a minority view, so I'm happy to accept a burden of proof. Now, in the morning, we saw the difference between the regular, ordinary worship of God's people on a Sabbath, and indeed throughout the week. We saw that on the one hand, their regular, regular, ordinary worship, and on the other hand, their occasional and extraordinary worship. Three times a year, they appeared in the, tab in the temple. Originally a tabernacle, when they were a peripatetic or wandering people, but then the temple when they settled in the promised land. So three times a year they appeared there. Now, again, let me stress, the worship in these two places was radically different. When the ordinary Israelite, let's say living in Nazareth, as Jesus was, when the ordinary Israelite went to church on the Sabbath, he saw what we see and he heard what we hear. Ordinary buildings with benches, a raised platform where the speaker spoke, and a bench for elders. A little chest containing the scrolls of the Old Testament scriptures. The Psalms were sung. A scroll was taken out. It was read, and the preacher would preach. He would pray, leading the congregation to the throne of grace. And when it was over, he would pronounce a blessing and the service of the synagogue was over. You recognize that, of course. You should recognize it, because as I stressed in the morning, New Testament churches are just synagogues Christianized. In other words, to convert a synagogue, which looked like this, to convert it into a Christian church, all you did was add the scrolls of the New Testament. Well, of course, we have books, but you get the point. You just add the scrolls of the New Testament, and instead of preaching a Messiah to come, you preach a Messiah who has arrived, and you have a Christian church. That is why James calls the Christian church a synagogue in James chapter 2. If a man comes into your assembly well-dressed, 
See to it that you don't give him preferential treatment over somebody who is poorly dressed. The contrast there is richly and poorly dressed. The word for assembly is synagogue. This is a synagogue. The word synagogue is meeting place. Assembly. That's what we have here. That's why the Jews should recognize us and we should recognize them. And one day we will, but that, of course, is another matter. Every single Sabbath, that's where they go. They would go there to a prayer meeting in Jesus' day. They would even attend the synagogue school. And I mentioned in the morning, when they were 12 years of age, most of them, they would see the temple for the first time, which smelled and looked and sounded so different. Animals slaughtered on an altar. A gorgeously robed priest from head to foot. The smell of the incense, the the altars, the showbread, the lampstand, everything so tactile, everything so different, just three times a year. Why? Because the temple is a picture of Jesus Christ. Every single bit belonging to it and belonging to the tabernacle before it is pointing towards Jesus, the lampstand, the bread of life, the altar of incense, the altar of sacrifice, the robes, the ephod, the breastplate. Everything is him, the ark, the cherubim, the shekinah, the tablets of law. It's him, even the curtains. It's him. It's a picture of a man. It's a picture of a God-man. It's the picture of our Lord and Saviour. Temporary and meant to be temporary. Because when the temple is destroyed, when Christ comes, the synagogue remains. And the synagogue continues, transformed gently into a myriad of Christian churches all through the world. And the temple expires because Jesus has come. Because the one who fulfilled everything in it, because he has come, that expires. The priesthood, the vestments, the incense, and the music. Because there was no music in the weekly worship of God's people. Just the music of the voice. The music of the instruments, of the cymbals, of the stringed instruments... That was confined to the tabernacle and to the temple. And when the Levite goes, so does his harp. And to understand that is to begin to understand why we worship the way we do. It's nothing to do with being reactionary. It's nothing to do with being snobbish or anti-cultural or whatever. Quite the contrary. In fact, our form of worship is very cross-cultural. Extremely so. Uh, in fact, that's one of the beauties of the synagogue. It was discovered that it was so easy to transport and to transplant. This is very easy to transport and transplant. The songs that we sing are the songs of God's people. And we sing with the voice which belongs to us all. But in any case, let's move on. Now, in the morning, we saw how music first entered. It came with Moses. And we can hardly call it music in a way because Moses was commanded, when he built the tabernacle, he was commanded to make two trumpets. Two trumpets, two silver trumpets. And they were to be blown when the congregation was to gather at the tabernacle building and when the feasts were being announced. They were announced with a trumpet. Um, the congregation would detect according to the number of trumpets, whether it was one or two, and according to the sound of the trumpets, they would detect whether they were being called for war or being called for a feast and so on. That's all that you had. There was no other worship involving music under the old covenant till that point. And it stayed that way for 400 years. 
until the advent of David as the second king of Israel around 1000 BC. Now with David, there's a big change because he feels the call of God. Well, he doesn't just feel the call of God. Um, It's a call that's authenticated by the prophet to build a temple. Because they're not a wandering people. They're in the promised land now. So let the tabernacle give way to a temple. And God told him that there was to be a new role for the Levites. The Levites who had spent so much time carrying the equipment of the tabernacle and arranging its furniture and so on. They were to be given a new role. 4,000 of them, there were many other thousands involved in other things, but 4,000 of them were to be set apart as professional singers and musicians before the Lord. The first time David uses them is when the ark itself, as the first piece of temple furniture, notice, when the first piece of temple furniture is being gathered to Mount Zion, the ark of the covenant, David employs them. But he employs them carelessly. He doesn't just employ the singers, he allows all Israel to play instruments, and he's not careful either about how the ark was actually carried. We're told that he put it on a new cart. Sounds like a good idea, but everything in worship sounds like a good idea. The question is never, is it a good idea? Does it look good? That, in fact, was how the Philistines had delivered the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel on a cart. First time Israel had ever seen it, but obviously they thought that's a good idea. Problem was that God had said that that's not how to carry the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be carried by Levites on poles. Now you say, well, that's such a little thing. Well, who says? People love to say that things are secondary or things are unimportant. Well, who are you to say that and who am I to say it? I mean, if if God says a thing, then let it be. To me, it's important if God says it. It's not how big or small I think it is, but God's saying it. I sometimes make a comparison with that to certain things that my own father told me to do. For example, he would tell me to go to church on a Sabbath morning, or he may tell me just to take a bucket of coal in for the fire. Now, I've no doubt which is more important in a sense, but... I wasn't really allowed to be weighing them up because he told me. (laughs) That's the end of that. It's my relationship to him that mattered, really. My relationship to him. And that's the way it is with God. I mean, if God says, let the Levites carry the ark, God says, let the Levites carry the ark. It may not have the same preeminence as thou shalt not kill, but God says so. And he expects his commandments always to be honored. Now, David, of course, didn't. And the Oxen carrying the Ark of the Covenant stumbled. Uzzah, who we believe was a good man. We believe he was a good man, but he put out his ark, his hand to stop the ark tumbling, and God struck him dead. David was angry with God that day. And he went home sulking, worse than sulking. He went home raging. He was was furious, and he was furious with God. Breach upon Uzzah, he said. An outbreak upon Uzzah. He felt that the wrath of God there was out of bounds and it was out of control. You see, that's what happens when we ourselves are out of place. We tend to think that what God does is out of place. It's always when we come back to where we should be before God that we understand that it's not God that's out of place, it's us. It's not God that's lost his sense of proportion, it's we who have lost our sense of proportion. We become desensitized to sins of all kinds, and we think that God is to be rebuked for dealing with them. But as I mentioned in the reading, when David was three months at home, he thought differently. He changed the arrangements. The Levites were to take the instruments. The Levites were to play them. And the Levites were to carry the ark up to Mount Zion. That was the first time we find the instruments employed. What David does next is a permanent thing. He arranges 4,000 Levites under the control of three men called Asaph, Jeduthun, and Haman, and they are placed in charge of the singing and the music with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And these are always the terms used, harps, 
stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the scriptures emphasize that it is a specific command that was given to David. David says that himself uh, several times. But we read it later during Hezekiah's reformation. Now, you may remember this in the reading, but when Hezekiah was putting things right again, we're told that he stationed the Levites in God's house with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, according to the command of David. Now, this is going back 300 years plus. So he stations them according to what David had said 300 years ago and what Gad, the king seer, had said. Seer is another word for prophet. To go into the difference is a digression. And the command of Nathan, the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So they stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Now you'll notice the emphasis, and I could read you another three or four texts that say the same thing. It wasn't David's idea. David was a musician. That's fine. That's good. But it wasn't his idea to bring the instruments into the worship of God. It was God who told him to do it. Why? We'll see a little later on. But it was God who did that. God spoke to him through Nathan the prophet. He spoke to him through God the seer. Who was to play? How many were to play? And what instruments were to be played? Remember from the morning, it's tightly regulated. uh, Today, anybody brings any instrument they like, and very often it's incorporated into the worship. Not so in the scriptures. It wasn't David's idea. But what I want to emphasize is that what, what David lays down as a law here, or what God lays down as a law through David, becomes normative in the Old Testament. It becomes the rule to which the whole church is to conform in every era. Let me take some examples. 200 years after David, Jehoiada the priest embarks on a reform of worship and he purifies the worship. We're told that he commanded the burnt offerings to be offered as written in the law of Moses and that he commanded songs to be sung as established by David. Now, isn't that interesting? Jehoiada doesn't decide what the Reformation should look like, does he? He goes back to what the Word of God said. And the last word that God had said on the matter was what David had said on the matter 200 years before. So we sing what David has given, and it's accompanied by the instruments that David appointed. A hundred years later, and we come to the Reformation of Hezekiah, which in some ways is the most interesting one, and it's the one that we read. And you'll notice that Hezekiah reforms again the singing and the musical accompaniment. If you just turn for a second to 2 Chronicles 29, and the passage that we read there, 2 Chronicles 29, I want you to notice first, in verse 30, that he commands what's to be sung in verse 30. Moreover, King Hezekiah, sorry, that's page 524 in the church Bible, page 524, 2 Chronicles 29, at verse 30. Now, here he commands the content of the praise. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with what? His own latest song? Or the song that some gifted people had come up with in the assembly? No. With the words of David and of Asaph the seer, long dead. But why their songs? Because they were inspired songs. They were songs that God had given to be sung in worship. So it doesn't matter if no one 
had been inspired to sing one in the last hundred years, they go back to the last one that was inspired, right? You see the pattern? Sing the words of David and of Asaph the seer. What about the musical accompaniment? Well, if you move up to verse 25, you'll notice the musical accompaniment. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with, here we go again, with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king, seer, and of Nathan the prophet. So again, the music is the music that God commanded. He doesn't decide to introduce other instruments. Neither does he decide to get other people to play them, either from his own family or other gifted musicians. Levites playing the instruments that David appointed. Notice a pattern? Eighty years later, you have Josiah's Reformation. And Josiah the king commands the people to organize, and he commands the priests and the Levites to do everything according to the commandments of David. Now, you may think this is getting repetitive, but I'll tell you something, it's not getting repetitive enough, because people still aren't paying attention to it. How often does God have to say something before the penny drops and people change their practice and become obedient? In 2 Chronicles 35, and in verse 15, this is Josiah this time. Again, he's established. By the way, it's interesting that in 80 years, the thing seems to slip back so quickly, and it has to be put right again. So chapter 35 and verse 15, the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places. Here you have the scripture code word, according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman and Jeduthun, the king's seer. It's according to the last word said. And there's a simple principle involved there. The church is always bound to the last word God said until God changes it. The church is bound to a seventh-day Sabbath until Jesus moves it onto the first day of the week. And we're bound to the first day of the week until he returns again because the scripture's finished. It's shut. The prophets have ceased. The book is closed. We are bound to the last words. But everybody in every generation is always bound to the last word God said. If you move 50 years forward from Josiah's time, you come to the age of Nehemiah, who appointed the Levites to sing with, yes, you've guessed it, the cymbals, the stringed instruments, and the harps, which he calls the instruments of David, the man of God. I want you to remember, by the way, that Nehemiah had seen different worship for many years in Babylon, along with the rest of the exiles. You may remember we considered Daniel recently, very graphically, or sorry, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were commanded to fall down before the giant golden figure on the plain of Jura at the sound of the dulcimer and the sackbut and the psaltery and all these instruments. They were familiar with worship around them like that all the time. So when Nehemiah comes back home, he says, let's do it like that. No, he doesn't. We're back to the cymbals, to the stringed instruments, and to the harps, the instruments of David, the man of God. That is actually rather similar to what Moses did with the two trumpets, because he was familiar with trumpets in Egypt, but they didn't look like the ones he made. He was familiar with all kinds of instruments in worship in Egypt. He didn't incorporate any of them into the tabernacle. Why not? Because God didn't tell him to. Which is what they were concerned about, and which is what we should be concerned about too. Paul rebukes will worship in his letter to the Colossians. Will worship is essentially our will determining what's to be done. The church is infested with it. It's almost impossible to believe that all the churches of the Reformation, except the Lutheran ones, were completely cleared of all instrumental musics at the, at the time of worship. It's almost impossible to believe that now. So music here is appointed by God, done by the Levites, 
at David's appointment. Now, two or three questions that are important. First of all, now this question may surprise you. Where did the instruments come from? Now you may say, well, that's an unusual question. Is it really relevant? But it is because the Bible actually teaches that these instruments were made specifically for purpose and that they were made by David himself. In a way, that shouldn't surprise us because everything was like that, that belonged to the temple worship. It it was different from what was around. I've hinted at that already. I I mentioned Moses and the trumpets, but the, the tabernacle is the same. There are significant differences between the tabernacle that God appointed and the kind of buildings that the Egyptians used to worship in. And um, God anointed a man called Bezalel to supervise the furniture that went into the tabernacle and was unique, absolutely unique. It was not like anything else found anywhere. The, The trumpets that I referred to earlier, all Egyptian trumpets are curved. Moses was long and straight. Why? Because God said so. Those were the sounds that God wanted to hear. Notice, by the way, that we're moving in a completely different realm to what's going on today, where it's the sounds that God wants to hear just doesn't enter into it, does it? It's not a question. It's, I can play this, so listen. Again, the instruments that David uses are called the instruments of David. Hezekiah calls them that. Nehemiah calls them the instruments of David. Now, I'm conscious that the expression instruments of David on its own is ambiguous. It can mean the instruments that David appointed, or it could mean the instruments that he made. The instruments of David. Which is it? Well, I've no doubt that it means the instruments that he made. Why? Well, let me bring a couple of evidences before you. The first is in Amos where the prophet rebukes people who are inventing instruments for themselves, as David did. Now, he's not rebuking David for inventing instruments. He's rebuking them for doing it. Who knows what they were doing with them? Probably bringing them into the worship of God. But he rebukes them for inventing them. You sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments, and you invent musical instruments for yourselves like David, as as though you were like him, as though you were like him. But you drink wine from bowls, you anoint yourselves with the best ointments, and you are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Superficially religious people, they think they're like David, so they have liberty to invent instruments for themselves. But the word means to create, to make or to design, to design something new. It's actually used of the furniture that Bezalel designed for the tabernacle. Solomon later, well, actually David designed furniture for the temple by God's appointment. This same word here, invent, is actually used of the weapons that Uzziah, the king, invented for warfare. One of them was the... uh, I can't remember the name of it. I didn't take a note of it. Uh, you sometimes see it in ancient warfare. It's, it's like a giant catapult. It's uh, something that you release and it just shoots a very heavy rock over the wall. Uzziah invented that, the king of Judah. He was the first to use that in warfare. But the word for invent is the word that you've got here when David invented instruments. And again, David himself uses the expression the instruments that I made. When he tells the 4,000 Levites to play the harps, the cymbals and stringed instruments, he says, the instruments that I made. Hezekiah too says that David made the instruments. David's instruments made by him for the use of the people. They were different. They sounded different. It doesn't surprise us. Even the incense that was used in the tabernacle was different. 
That incense represented the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ and indeed the prayers of his people in Jesus Christ. And that smelled different from any other incense. Nobody else was allowed to mix the perfume. It was a sacred spice. In fact, anyone who mixed that perfume was to be put to death. It it was a challenge to Jesus. It, It was a challenge to the authority of God. It was a sacred spice, a sacred smell. It was to be a unique smell. The same was true when the instruments sounded. You knew when they sounded that this was God's worship. Because these instruments were made by David. And they were appointed to be used by the Levites in the worship of God. And that brings me to this. I mean, as well as who made them, it's who placed them. It was the Levites all the time. I could bring seven references easily before you to show that it was the Levites. It was always the Levites because it had something to do with them anyway. When the ark returned, remember, all Israel played and God was angry. When the ark returned the second time, the Levites played. It was connected to them. When were the instruments played? Well, you'll notice in the passage that we read from Hezekiah's Reformation. When the burnt offering began, the cymbals, the stringed instruments, and the harps, they began. And they continued playing until the offering was finished. So they are tied up with the offering of our Lord and Saviour. So why are they played? Why can Israel live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years without them? And why suddenly are they in? Well, because like the incense and like everything else, they are symbolic, ceremonial. They symbolize something. What is it that they symbolize? Well, what what do you think music symbolizes? What's music for? Music expresses emotion. That's its function. It can teach other things too, although it's more difficult to teach other things through music. But certainly its primary function is, along with being didactic, it's to be emotional. It stirs the heart. I suppose that's why people want it generally anyway. So when the instruments go up, they were meant to convey something about the offering that was being offered. Now, We've no idea precisely what emotion was conveyed. Maybe different ones. Maybe at a certain time it was an evident outburst of joy and gladness. At another time, maybe there were very somber tones. Of course, we still do the same thing ourselves when we sing, or at least we should. We're supposed to. If we take singing seriously, which by and large people don't, to our shame, But the fact of the matter is that we should reflect the words that we're singing. If there's joy, be joyful. If we are confessing, let the tone be appropriate. Let the tune be appropriate. Because we do use music. It's just that we don't use musical instruments. But God has commanded us to sing. And in every era amongst the Jewish people, they sang. They sang week to week in the synagogues. They sang constantly in their homes. The addition of the instruments is another matter. Let it come in with the incense. Let it come in with other things. Because, well, do we need the incense to teach us about prayer? Well, God says we do, for a time anyway. Let let the prayers of our Lord be symbolized by the incense that rises to heaven. So, let the joy that surrounds the sacrifice of Christ, or, or the solemnity that surrounds the sacrifice of Christ... Let it be reflected in the crash of the cymbal. Let it be reflected in the strings of the harp and the other stringed instruments that God appointed to be played. It's a picture of the heart. The heart. And when it comes to the new covenant, like I said in the morning, you look through the scriptures of the New Testament and you don't find it. You don't find it in Corinth, you don't find it in Colossae, you don't find it in Philippi, 
You don't find it in Ephesus. You don't find it in Laodicea. You don't find it anywhere. Why? Because like everything else appointed for a short time, it went with the advent of our Lord. In Hebrews 13, 15, we're told, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. Now, here's a great chance to bring in the symbols and the whatever. No, he says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. That's all. The fruit of our lips. Or again here, and I suppose you could say at last we're coming to the text, but that's fair enough. That's fair enough. In the words of the text here, we are to sing and to pluck the strings of our hearts to the Lord. What an opportunity to say, look, if we're supposed to speak to each other and to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, what that means, let's come to that another time, what an opportunity to say, get your instruments out. What an opportunity to say, take out your harps. No. Pluck the strings of your hearts to God. For the simple reason I mentioned earlier, the harps have gone because the Levites have gone and the priests have gone and the altars have gone and the sacrifices have gone and the vestments have gone and the incense have gone and so did the harps and the cymbals and the stringed instruments. Our position is not reactionary. It's not unthinking and it's not ignorant. It is actually biblically coherent, and it is the position of standard Reformed theology. We are not the ones out of step. <laughs> it is today a small number that adhere to this position, but sometimes it's the majority that's out of step with the will of God, and that's what happened here. We, we don't need these we are to pluck the strings of the heart. Like everything else, it's internalized. All these things haven't lost their meaning. They are just spiritualized. Under the new covenant, things have fallen away externally. And it's all come inside. We don't listen to Levites offering. We don't watch people performing. We all do it. We all sing. And we sing plucking the strings of our heart to the glory of God. We offer the fruit of our lips in praise of God. So we sing, as I said in the morning, a cappella. The ancient name as in the church. You'll spot the little word chapel inside the word cappella. A cappella. A reminder of the ancient practice of God's church. To sing without musical accompaniment. In doing so, we follow the example of the synagogue, the regular place of worship every single week amongst God's people. We follow the example of the New Testament churches, and we follow the example of the universal church in ancient times. I'll leave you with a question that I asked more or less in some form this morning, but I, I really want you to grapple with it. <clears throat> if the whole church in Europe and Asia and Africa and the Middle East was opposed to the use of musical instruments. Why do you think they were for 900 years? Do you actually believe that God would allow his church to be in error on such a critical point everywhere for 900 years? Let me put it another way around. In fact, when I do put it another way around, it's even harder to answer. Suppose, for the sake of argument, suppose the apostles had commanded music in every church, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so on. Why is it that in the second generation there is no one prepared to defend their use? Do you not find that absolutely amazing? I actually find it incredible. I find it incredible to believe that the apostles commanded musical instruments in every church they established 
and that in the second generation there is not one voice prepared to defend their use. You really need to think long and hard about what that means. But I just want to close with a word of encouragement to you that sometimes you may feel a bit strange. By the way, you have more brothers and sisters than you think who worship this way. And you do find people in the more ancient communions of the church, such as the Eastern Orthodox, who don't use music in their worship. You're not as rare as you think. But even when it feels that way, well, a big so what? Uh, The church can can lose its place on a lot of issues for a long, long time. In the Middle Ages, where was justification by faith? Never mind this. But what you believe is based on Scripture. And when we gather together and we just pluck our heartstrings and we sing the songs that God gave, and I'll come to them in a couple of weeks' time, you can do that knowing that Jesus did it. The apostles did it. And it's a sound that certainly does please God. It has his command, his warrant, and his approval. And we know when we offer him that in our liturgy that we are giving him what he wants. And at the end of the day, there's no substitute for that. But offer it from your heart. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we bless you for the opportunity to sing praise. And we pray as we do so that we would pluck the strings of our hearts. Because we are not to offer words only, but we are to offer feeling and soul and life. And we pray that these things would be evident in the spirit in which we sing, in the heartiness and enthusiasm of our praise to you, our great God. We pray for churches that are ignorant of these things and pray that they may discover them and the blessings that come with them. Help us to be mindful that there are people who have not been privileged with this teaching at all. And we pray to ensure that we never despise We pray, too, to remember that there may be some things on which we ourselves need to be taught and instructed by others. We bring before you churches that sadly move away from this truth when it has been a blessed and a great heritage to have. For the guilt of rejection is far, far greater than the guilt of ignorance. Lord, we pray that we would all discover the wonder of Christ crucified in the songs that he has given us to sing. Raise the praise in our midst. We read in the scriptures that you inhabit the praises of your people. So, Lord, when we offer them tonight, we pray that you would inhabit them and indeed that you would be enthroned upon them. May it be evident from what we sing and how we sing it, that you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In our Saviour's name, Amen. Our uh, last singing from God's Word is in Psalm 86, on page uh, 341. And uh, the tune is Bishop Thorpe, page 341, at verse 9. All nations whom thou madest shall come and worship reverently before thy face, and they, O Lord, thy name shall glorify. Because thou art exceeding great, and works by thee are done which are to be admired, and thou art God thyself alone. So teach me thy way, and in thy truth, O Lord, then walk will I. Notice how how prepared he is to do what God wants. He doesn't just want to know it, he wants to do it. Unite my heart in case it's pulling in different directions, that I thy name may fear continually. When that happens, O Lord my God, with all my heart to thee I will give praise, and I the glory will ascribe 
unto thy name always. Well, I've said we've finished there, but it's a colon. Let's finish the sentence. Because thy mercy towards me in greatness doth excel, and thou delivered hast my soul out from the lowest hell. So we pray that God will unite our hearts and that we'll pluck the strings of our hearts as we sing verses 9 to 13. Let's stand to sing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.